0: It's episode 84 with Emily Pennick. We talk about her new lady driven company, Red Stage, and their flagship production, Worse Than Tigers, currently running at Act Lab. Worse Than Tigers, a new play by Mark Chrysler, is a somewhat fantastical exploration of the role social media plays in modern relationships, particularly as we grieve. You won't want to miss this show, and it closes April 17th. Tickets are available at acttheater.org theater with an RE. Thank you to today's sponsor, Island Shakespeare Festival. ISF is Whidbey Island's professional regional repertory theater. Their summer season runs July 8th through September 11th with As You Like It, directed by artistic director Susanna Rose Woods, Jane Eyre, adapted and directed by Julie Beckman, and Julius Caesar, directed by Corey McDaniel of Theater 22. ISF is currently in the midst of a Kickstarter campaign to raise funds for a backstage makeover, taking upcycled shipping containers and repurposing them as dressing rooms and storage space. For more info, visit islandshakespearefest.org and check them out on Facebook. Uh, All right. I'm so excited to have Emily Pennick joining us again um, to talk about her show called Worse Than Tigers that she's directed, running at um, in Act Lab right now. Closing this weekend? Does it close on. Actually,
1: April 17th. Oh, so there are two oh, more weekends. Two
0: more. Oh, good. Oh, I thought it was closing this weekend. I was really sad that we were just getting to this. Um, great. So, April 17th. Perfect. I saw the show last weekend, and I I was very moved by it. I think it's a really poignant piece that deals with a lot of stuff that is super contemporary that hasn't really been, like, talked about yet with social media and, like, how we respond as humans to social media and how social media acts as kind of a way to not have to deal with human stuff also. Yeah. Uh, so I'd love to hear kind of how you guys dealt with that in the process. It's it's so new, and so... What was the conversation around that?
1: Certainly. Um, well, thanks for for tapping into that, because this play really is a comedy until it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when it dives into the darker places, it does confront what social media has done, particularly to our grieving process. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> one of the fun things, uh, sort of digging into... Our modern world in the rehearsal room was that one of our well two of our cast members the gentleman Brad Farwell and John William Watkins they have Facebook accounts um, and they keep them up nicely and uh, (laughs) they have their little you know mask to the world uh, what is how they want to present themselves Mm -hmm. and their profile and then Kirsten Potter who plays Olivia actually doesn't even have a Facebook account
0: so
1: she, you know, she had to do that research um, and <laughs> found out very much that, that her character is a lot uh, more different from herself than she thought. Uh-huh. Um, there's this element in, um, in the relationship that Olivia and Humphrey have where they say that when they're, when they're trying to sort of tease it out at the end and figure things out, there's a, a bit of a revelation about how they can't feel anything unless they have an audience. And I think that's, um, that's very much of the now, in terms of the Facebook ethos. I personally um, was struck by how many national and international tragedies have happened um, since we even started our Kickstarter um, this fall. Because I was talking in that video about how we are expected to move on so quickly or rather, maybe the the metabolism for tragedy has sped up so much in this modern age that um, something horrific like a mass shooting is old news in two days, and um, we're treated like we're retelling an old joke if we're still feeling uh, hurt or scared, you know, mm-hmm. a week later. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think that's a really beautiful point. The metabolism. Of tragedy, of how we respond to tragedy. Just... I mean,
1: how how messed up is it that you know we see news of a shooting or a terrorist attack, and then right below it, it's like a fluffy bunny video.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And then right below it, we learn that a loved one or you know a friend of a friend has passed away. Uh-huh. And we don't even get that information from humans anymore. We get it from our newsfeed.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So there's
1: something about the juxtaposition of the newsfeed that um, I think is really
0: jarring. I agree, and also I, it made me also consider the other side of that, of it being a way for people to, exp- even, even though they don't give themselves a lot of time, it is still a way to at least deal with it in some way, so I wonder if there are some positives to it, becoming almost a journal as... Sometimes inappropriate as I feel it is for me to be reading other people's journals on my Facebook feed, but uh-huh. um, at least they are talking about it. I don't know. I wonder it's if it's true.
1: A... It's true, but one of the things the, the play taps into is that we can only read on Facebook what people put on Facebook. Yes. So we're reading whatever version of somebody's journal mm-hmm. uh, they wanted us to read. It's about curating, you know, curating your identity right. from, from home. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting, too, to me, um, if I can just go off on a tangent here. Please do. <laughs> there are these themes of social media um, and what it's done to, not, not you know, in the grand scheme, the fabric of society, but on the, the, the micro scale of two people. Um, and, it's, and it's not that Facebook tore their marriage apart. It, it's really not. It's, um, it's more about how they are processing a tragedy in their life. And Facebook and smartphones happen to be this wonderful immediate escape mm-hmm. from having to look into the eyes of the person um, they once loved or they still love Uh, who's right across the room from them. So there's some moments that were discovered in rehearsal where uh, Brad and Kirsten would come up against almost talking about a really important thing that their characters could never really talk about. They almost get to talking about it, and then there's a scripted pause, and one of them has to go back to reading on their phone. Mm because they just they can't they can't go there and they have this convenient little escape in the palm of their hand
0: yeah yeah and it is such an escape I mean um I was reading an article recently about an acting class at some university and the students some students were doing a scene where at the top of the scene someone's waiting at a bus stop and it's a play from I don't know 50 years ago and the student couldn't use their phone to, like, pass the time of waiting at the bus stop because, obviously, that w- they didn't exist in the time period of the play. And the, the student was, like, really having a hard time figuring out how to just be with their thoughts by themselves, waiting yes. <laughs> for their scene partner to enter. And I thought that was such a... yes like that is exactly we don't know how to just be anymore because we have these devices that allow us access to the world all the time so when our phone is dead or something or like you know we don't have that it's really can be really uncomfortable for people or in those moments where there's something that we should be dealing with but we don't know how to deal with it on a personal level then the phone is and the world of the phone, what the phone has access to, becomes exactly. the go-to, yeah.
1: You know, I, and I've been reading a lot about this, obviously, um, you know, in directing this piece, um, the, you know, there, there's always been some kind of technology, quote-unquote technology, that people say is ripping apart the fabric of humanity, so hmm. even if, even if it's like, oh my gosh, these young people are sitting around reading their novels, you know, in the, in the <laughs> 1910s, it's uh-huh. like, it's rotting their brains, they're not interacting with each other, or then, you know, when the movies came along, it was like movies are going to destroy the fabric of, of our society. But, I, I so I, I was, you know, I was taking that argument of, oh, well, this is just the next thing. But we curate how people see us on, on social media in a way that I think makes us all more lonely. Yeah. Um, and also we get very raw News. I mean, the the dawn of you know the twenty four hour news cycle, coupled with with this little device, it, um, it's pretty toxic. And I yeah. think that that Mark Chrysler does a great job um, of crafting an absurdist comedy that taps into some very um, very relevant conversations that we need to be having about
0: this. I'd love to talk a little more about that, the comedy aspect of it, because it. It's pretty absurdist, yes, I would agree. Um, I, you, however, you can drive that part of the conversation in terms of how much you sure. want to give away about the, the plot, uh, up until it changes. But um, I'd love to hear kind of how you guys found that balance with that, um, and then also, uh, the balance of what is reality versus, um, fantasy. Cause there are some aspects that are larger than life. It seems kind of from the start. Yeah. So what That's was right. that? What was that for you?
1: Yeah. Um. So the premise, uh, is that Olivia and Humphrey are waiting for an old friend to come over for dinner, and they're sitting in their beautiful, pristine mid-century modern apartment. Um. No personal knickknacks anywhere. Just pretty, pretty elemental. Uh. Designed by Jen Zyl, who's amazing, and um. So they're sitting there, and we think this is just a boring couple who's waiting for somebody to come over. And then we get the news that a tiger has gotten loose from the zoo and has gone on this killing rampage and has killed their friend um, and is hot on the heels of a man that shows up at their apartment. He blasts in, barricades the door, barricading the tiger just outside their apartment. And what unfolds is um is you get the impression that this gentleman who has arrived is, in fact, uh, Olivia's lover. And so the three of them are trapped in there <laughs> with a tiger outside the door. So that's that's pretty absurd.
0: It is pretty absurd.
1: <laughs> um, and, you know, in an uh, I think in an effort to. To survive and to hold on to everything that has helped him survive, um, Humphrey, the husband played by Brad Farwell, um, kind of doubles down on his polititudes um, and really tries to ignore the nagging feeling that oh my God, is this is this my wife's lover? Uh, am I am I actually picking up on signs here that are here or that I just think are here? So I'm gonna I'm just gonna be the perfect host and so what what ends up happening is it's comedic and it's absurd it's um it's a a man trying to negotiate and be a a lovely host for um for a man who's uh screwing his wife um, and nothing nothing is said outright so it keeps right. you uh the, the twists and turns they're such witty smart um sort of hairpin turns written into this piece that I love. Um, yeah, so it's it's funny until it kind of turns on you a little bit, but it mm-hmm. takes a while to turn on you.
0: Yeah. Um, did you talk about the reality of the tiger? Like, Yes. Um, as the play wraps up, you know, the tiger becomes a different sort of tiger, I think. Yeah. Um, There's an
1: evolution there. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Um, I'm really interested in that evolution. Yeah, I didn't really notice when it changed. I guess, and then, mm-hmm. and, and then I was very aware of, you know, oh, okay, we're dealing with something else here. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean
1: the the tiger. Um, as a director, I needed to direct the piece as if there was actually a tiger outside the door. Uh, And the sound design creates an actual tiger out there. I had a wonderful time with um, Phil Johnson, our sound designer, um, making these expressive moments of the tiger. But it's important for the structure of the piece that Olivia and Humphrey and Kurt are genuinely in danger. It was very important for the storytelling element for me to create a realistic tiger Mm -hmm. that was threatening them. Now, on a on a bigger picture note, it's absolutely a metaphorical tiger. And we've had talkbacks every evening, Mm -hmm. and and we will have them every evening of the play. And it's so fun to listen to people argue about the tiger um, (laughs) in in a way where people are 100% sure it is real. And what it does is, you know, that which a real tiger would do. And there are other people who are entirely convinced it is a metaphorical tiger, and the tiger stands for X-X. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so it's been thrilling and some people are like, this play is absolutely just about condemning Facebook and everyone else is like, no, it's about the grieving process. So I, uh, <laughs> I I'm just loving, uh, the conversations that are coming out of this play. Yeah.
0: Oh, I, I was wondering because in your, in your notes, I think you said that this, you went to school with the playwright That's right. Um, And so you've been familiar with this play for a long time, and it's been something that's stuck with you, and I'm interested uh, why. (laughs) Like, what is it about it that speaks to you? And that has made you want to produce it for a long time?
1: Thank you. Yeah. um, So I first saw a workshop uh, of this play back in 2013, when Mark Chrysler and I were getting our MFAs in playwriting and directing, respectively, at Ohio University. And... I had never laughed that hard and then cried that hard. (laughs) Um, And I I think, you know, in this, I'm seeing this in my position as a literary uh, manager that you kind of need to get to an audience's heart through their funny bone. Um, And I I was really drawn to it um, initially because the writing was funny and smart and surprising And there was always at least two things going on, if not like four things going Mm -hmm. on. I I love to be leaning forward and trying to tease out a puzzle as an audience member. It it really engaged me, but it reminded me a lot of, uh, one of my favorite Harold Pinter plays, a little one act called the lover and the way Pinter had written the space between the lines, you know, those wonderful Pinter pauses, Mm -hmm. um, in this domestic environment with a married couple. And I, I hadn't found a play that I loved that much until and Tigers. And then, you know, I, I, I graduated and I went off to the Milwaukee Repertory Theater and, um, everywhere I went, I carried the script with me and I would, I would reread it about every six months and it just kept working on me and it kept, mm. um, it kept going deeper. And, um, this, The self-discovery that Olivia has in particular, she's one of my favorite female characters um, that I've ever read, and she's dealing with very um, raw personal tragedy and in a modern context, so I think that that's a a story worth telling. Um, And so this play, uh, I I brought it under my arm to Seattle two years ago, and it had uh, reading um, that I directed a pipeline reading for NCTC and it also was a construction zone reading at act um, with the Washington Ensemble theater. So this this play was like about to have its moment and um, and I'm just so thrilled that the stars aligned and um, and Mark wanted me to, to direct it and I realized wow, I have these amazing women who I've been working with for the past two years in Seattle. Why don't we combine our forces and produce this thing and and have it be the flagship production of a new theater company
0: can you talk a little bit about red stage and and how that came to be and this is as you say the flagship production congratulations launching this you so much um i'd love to hear kind of how and why uh you wanted to start your own company and and produce your own work
1: absolutely um well, I'm really into ladies helping ladies and um, <laughs> yeah. and, and women <laughs> curating the conversation. Mm-hmm. So um, this is a play that has an amazing female protagonist. And so I thought that would be a wonderful way to, to jump things off with Red Stage. But uh, I'll go back to sort of the little Red Stage origin story, which is um, we sat down um, and I, I kind of led this brainstorm uh, about what, why do we all do theater, and we just wrote down all the reasons why we do theater, and we started to hone in on the importance of risk,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, whether that's <laughs> financial or emotional risk, <laughs> you know, like whatever. Uh, but, but risk being an essential part of making excellent art, and then we talked about engaging. Um, it can be a risk to engage. It can be uh, engaging when you're sitting in the audience um, deciding to lean forward or having a play grab you so you have to lean forward and engage, or whether that's a theater um, company engaging with their community. Um, so we had risk, engage, and then discovery. Um, discovery that theater can help you discover something about yourself or about the world that you didn't know. And so risk, engage, discover, R E D. Came Red Stage. And I just just love the idea of reclaiming this gendered color and this color um, that stands for extreme emotion, like love and hate. So that's why we're called Red Stage. And it's just four of us young women um, who are patient about finding the right kind of work to produce. So Worse Than Tigers is our first show. I think we'll probably have a loose model of producing one show a year. But the the thing that I'm the most excited about now that worse in Tigers is open and and going very well it is the connective tissue between productions I'm really interested in connecting underserved voices in theater and in my experience you know being a, a lady it was um, I felt very alone rising in the ranks of being a young director I didn't I didn't see a lot of uh, role models it, where I just happened to be at the time. Um, there are lots of wonderful lady directors in Seattle, but um, but when I was on the road, I was assisting you know, men at at lore theaters and things like that. So it was it's important to me to have um, salons and um, and interviews and ways to connect uh, women and so that they can share resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and help each other
0: um, rise in their careers. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Do you plan in the future to focus on women playwrights as well? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, there's a very, very strong woman in this play and and very human and well-rounded character, I think, Olivia, is just the final payoff as a woman. Her speech is like... Especially as a woman in my, you know, late 20s, um, I won't spoil it, but it's everyone should see it because it's so truthful and honest and the tragedy that she's experienced then goes back to this, you know, her whole adulthood and, you know, what has led up to this point and yeah, it's great. So certainly beautifully written characters. I think everyone is very well-rounded and human, which can be hard to find. When I was at the talk back, I heard someone behind me saying, oh, I thought it was going to be all women, and a, it's by a man, and there are men. So it was interesting, and I have heard that since, too, from a couple of people. Like, oh, yeah, but wasn't there, based on the Kickstarter, wasn't it like a woman-led thing? So, it's, so if you want to take a moment to talk about the choice of this for your flagship production and the choice of having a male playwright, and if that played into it at all. I know, obviously, it's a uh, yeah. play that you've wanted to do for a long time. So,
1: Absolutely. Um, it's about women curating the conversation. Cool. So the theater company is all women. It is an all-female-led company. And what that means is that women are choosing the plays, and women are hiring the designers and, and the actors. So, so it comes down to leadership. And we can choose to produce a play by a man or, or, or hire um, a male designer. Uh, but but ultimately, it comes down to that choice being um, coming from female leadership.
0: I think that's great. And it really, I mean, I think the play does give voice to very important human issues. <laughs> and not, I, I appreciated that. It's a it's a woman led company and it wasn't a like. Uh, necessarily like, heavy handed feminist, like you know it was just it's just a story about people and humans and how we deal with human things. Which right.
1: I, and ultimately, you know, I'm I'm very I'm very invested in hiring as as many women as possible, um, in terms of being a producer and, Mm -hmm. um, as a director, you know, putting together my team, um, uh, because we are underrepresented in the theater profession. Um, but I wouldn't ever want to pigeonhole myself into saying I would only work with women.
0: Sure. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so the, the point of, of Red Stage is about women curating the conversation, not about, uh, Blocking everybody else out.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I love that. I think that's wonderful. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of your process as a director. Having talked to you about Romeo and Juliet, and uh, and that process a little bit, which I'm seeing tonight. It's Thursday. I'm seeing Romeo and Juliet tonight. I can't wait. Um, oh great! <laughs> finally, been waiting so long. Uh, but <laughs> so going from a classical. Shakespeare play to this totally modern um very different script what is that like for you and do you are there elements of your process that are the same from play to play or do things change
1: you know things do change for me my rehearsal process does change from play to play Uh in terms of what the needs of the piece are um I I always have certain consistent structural and, and textual approaches but um these two plays that I've just done were very different because I had a 14 person cast Romeo and Juliet that had a a very long rehearsal process and it was over a month and we really started text work two months out and then we hit proper, you know, on your feet rehearsals uh, about a month after that uh, compared to a three-hander modern piece where we had a truncated rehearsal period i just shy of three weeks, so they were very different. I thought that after living in Shakespeare world, uh, Worse than Tigers was going to be
0: so easy,
1: <laughs> and I was wrong. I was wrong. Um, I love working on new plays. Um, that's really where my my passion lies, and and I knew this play, and I've been living with this play for three years but there's so much between the lines to mine and there's so much motivation to clarify and it's all in the text but it it takes some digging Mm -hmm. Um, and people make some pretty extreme choices in this play um, that are sometimes funny and sometimes uh, disturbing and you have to unpack exactly why it all happens. And when you have kind of an absurd frame, you could just say, oh, well, I'll just say the words and it'll be really fun popcorn dialogue and, you know, it'll be a success. Uh, But my actors are better than that. I mean, Kirsten Potter does not rest until she has gotten specific and personalized everything. Um, Oh, my God, Brad Farwell just keeps digging and digging. And... um, working with John William Watkins was cool because he's from the cast of Sleep No More in New York. And he brings a playfulness and a physicality. Um, I'm sure he has some clown training, but just his relationship with objects in the rehearsal (laughs) hall um, was illuminating and fun. Mm. Um, And we found some great stuff just from his fearless playfulness. So they were different. Yeah, and it's actually, I think, harder to memorize Mark's um, dialogue than it is to memorize Shakespeare. Um, I've heard that a lot from professional actors about Mamet. That
0: oh, man. Oh, that It's almost, God. it's
1: that's like the most difficult thing it to is. memorize. To and, be and,
0: specific about it, absolutely. Shakespeare's like a song. It's You know if you've got a word wrong. Right, Mamet. you can feel it.
1: And, yeah. <laughs> you know, there are these little one- or two-word interjections both in, in Mamet and in, in Mark Chrysler's writing where, um, the rhythms and the momentum of the piece tumble forward. And you might, (laughs) you might get like one different one word, uh, thing in edgewise. So the, the actual scripts are very sparse. You know, when you look at the page, it's just boom, 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 Mm -hmm. a lot of white area. Um, so just, um, I felt, I felt a lot at, um, like I was more of an athletic coach than a director <laughs> yeah. in the rehearsal room um, yeah. because of the fast pace of this play.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, was Mark involved at all in the process?
1: We, uh, we talked a lot. Um, he's in Chicago,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and he's going to be coming out to see the show oh, good! on April 15th. Awesome. And he'll, he'll do a talk back afterwards as well.
0: Has um, he been, has he done any workshops with it on his own?
1: This play has had, um, it had a workshop uh, at the Ilkom Theater in Tashkent, Uzbekistan. Okay. I uh, got translated <laughs> for that. Um, it had uh, reading at the San Francisco Playhouse, the Stella Adler Studio, in their uh, First Breath Festival in New York. Uh, it had a reading at the Prop Theater. And then it was a semi-finalist for the Steppenwolf. First Look rep, semi-finalist for New American Voices, Best New American Play, and semi-finalist for um, NAPAT, Best New American Play. Wow. So, yeah, um, it got it got workshopped a lot and honed a lot, and um, it was just a matter of time before it got its premiere, and mm-hmm. I'm just so honored that we could do it here.
0: In the talk back after the performance I saw, uh, someone asked about... journey of the play and and like when when it was written and how he got there uh but the answer was that these two characters are from an earlier play that the the wife and husband Olivia and Humphrey are from a play that then he took these two characters out of and built their own play around them um do you know anything about that journey of where where they started
1: um, all I know, uh, is, is what Mark told me uh, at the beginning of this process, which was that he had written, um, several years ago, uh, a huge cast, uh, play that was, I don't know, something ridiculous, like 16 or 20 characters. And, um, when he was a, when he was a younger playwright and he just fell in love with these two characters and they needed their own play.
0: Cool. Also at the talkback I was at, um, someone was interested in what his inspiration was for those two characters. Do you know anything? Because it is such a, it's a very intimate, what they're dealing with is a very intimate thing that not every human goes through. It's, Uh you know, hopefully we don't. And it does seem like an interesting choice for a young playwright to write about what they're going through. And do you know anything about why that, particular aspect of life spoke to him or anything about Well, that? I
1: I can speculate a little bit from I'm I'm very good friends with Mark and his wife and um she's a brilliant actress named Heather Chrysler and they uh were starting to date when this play was being written. And so what what Heather and I have talked about is how th- this play does explore some of the fears that um that you have when you're on the precipice of something that might last forever. Uh, and Mm -hmm. you know, they're married now, um, and and very happy. And, um, and so I think it, it was diving into, God, what if I'm, what if I marry this person? And what if I'm unlovable? Like there's this wonderful little confession, um, somewhere woven into the play about how, how brave they had to be just to get married in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, can they tap into that bravery again now that they have something else to confront but yeah and you know mark is an old soul um and he's he's lived a life and so um i think this notion that just because a playwright is young doesn't mean they they can't write older characters Mm -hmm. it's often true i mean you know oftentimes you can read a play and be like oh my god this person is 22 but um you know mark is in his 30s and um and he's a, he has an old poet soul, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I think he really, he wrote some incredibly believable and, and well-rounded
0: older characters. Yeah, he absolutely did. <laughs> there, it's, and it, you know, it's a play that's really stuck, I can understand why it stuck with you for so long, because it really, uh, it does, it has stuck with me and has made me think about tragedies that I have experienced in my life and how I've dealt with those and how, you know, just how important it is to talk about them and to, you know, not let them become a monster.
1: You know, the reason I do theater, um, I mean, I have a lot of reasons, but the chief reason is to exercise this empathy muscle
0: mm-hmm. in,
1: in society. And um, I do think that that empathy muscle has been atrophied by uh, social media because uh, the opinion has become the sacred thing. Yeah. Oh my God! I think this thing, or I feel this thing. I get to share it, even if it's offensive or hurtful. I get to post that, and then walk away. You know. So, so the payoff is I got to unload something.
0: Right. It creates but, such narcissism. It does. <laughs> and,
1: but and and you can share whatever opinions you want to share, but you don't you don't have to see the human cost at the other, at the receiving end of that.
0: Yeah. yeah. So,
1: yeah, I think all theater, you know, you're getting human beings in the room together. And even if, if you're going to go on a ride where you laugh together, where you cry together, it's a, it's a community catharsis, and I think it fosters empathy, and that's
0: really important right mm-hmm. now. What do you, I mean, it sounds like that might be the answer, but what do you hope that people take away from this? experience of this play.
1: I hope people are a little brave when they walk out of the theater. Um, they, watch, they watch three characters make some pretty brave decisions and um, yeah, I, I hope that people walk out feeling a little gutsy, um, I hope they walk out and maybe think the next time that they take out their phone while they're talking to somebody. Um, just get a, get a little more awareness about um, holding human interaction sacred or above what uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> your smartphone can offer, um, and I and I hope that people are excited about having a new theater company in town, um, one that really wants to join the the awesome party that is the Seattle theater scene.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, what's next for Red Stage?
1: What's next for Red Stage is I'm going to be interviewing uh, women in arts leadership and uh, publishing those interviews. So that will be my ritual um, for the next several months. And we are already in script um, searching and uh, program searching for what our next play will be.
0: Do you think you'll continue to do primarily new plays? Is that workshopping?
1: Honestly, I I love new plays, and I feel um, I feel like we want to tap into modern stories that need to be told. But mm-hmm. um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't pigeonhole into having to do new plays. It will probably be a new play, but if there's some brilliant reimagination. Of, of a classic that empowers ladies then um, by all means that would be a possibility as well
0: <laughs> well thank you so much for chatting today I'm glad we were able to figure out a, a way to make it work before you close me too um, thank you so much and I'm glad you enjoyed the show I did I really did it sparked a lot of conversation with my husband and myself definitely and we'll keep talking about it and I hope other people do too thank you, <laughs> thank you so much